0: Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in.
1: Welcome everyone to another episode of the Curiosity Habit, and today I have with me Dr. Tim Dubé from Sherbrooke University. He's an assistant professor in health professions education, and I've been interacting with Tim for the Bayfield meeting this year, and we've been having conversations in some other venues. So I'm very looking forward to know a little bit more about him. So welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks, Sarah. Happy to be here.
1: Thank you. So I'm going to start the way I'm usually starting this. uh, uh, The idea is to learn a little bit more about the person behind the research and not so much about the research. So I don't think we'll be talking about the details of the research, but more like what motivates you, like what brought you here and all that stuff because we all have very eclectic stories when we land in the medical education field, I believe. So just to start, I would love if you can give us a sense of who was Tim growing up, what kind of kid he was. When did he get in trouble? What was his curiosities? Anything that you can tell me about the environment that you were surrounded by when you were growing up?
0: Uh, Well, I think important to note is growing up in Northern Ontario, it's kind of automatic that you play hockey at a very (laughs) young age. And so I played hockey ever since I can remember uh, long enough to remember when I was holding a hockey stick and skating on the small uh, ponds and rinks in my neighborhood as a young kid and, you know, learning to get to uh, getting to know uh, other neighborhood kids and learning about their stories in terms of where they were from and how they got into hockey and eventually playing alongside them on uh, different teams as well.
1: So when you said Knowing about their stories and where they're from, is this because it's a place that gathered people from different communities?
0: What was it? Well, I think there's two levels to that. Uh, one, you have the sort of local playground rink where sort of all the neighborhood kids gather and play on any given night. Um, and back then, we spent more time outdoors than we did indoors. Uh, I'm not that old, but still young enough to <laughs> do that. Uh, and otherwise, you know, you had organized hockey teams. Oh. So that that's where you had people from different neighborhoods and different uh, schools and, and different languages. I grew up in a Franco-Ontarian, largely Franco-Ontarian community, so you had uh, different languages as well.
1: Mm-hmm. So your parents were the ones who have to do what? Well. I know very little about this idea, but through friends, I know that there is this thing called the hockey parents, that they are the ones who drive the kids everywhere so that was the kind of idea everything was around hockey?
0: <laughs> Pretty much. I thank my parents very much for uh, having uh, tolerated uh, keeping me busy as a kid in hockey and and traveling so much to different tournaments and games.
1: Oh wow. Were you, were, were you the only one or you have brothers and sisters who play hockey too?
0: Uh, so I have a younger sister. And she was more interested in uh, organized dance. And so she was uh, in uh, dance and had different interests.
1: Okay, Is this the the sports or that activity uh, kind of related life, uh, kind of a pattern in your family? Was something that your parents found important to cultivate? Where does it come from? Because I, I have the feeling that you like sports, am I right?
0: Very much. I'm an avid uh, sports fan. I uh, I like to play different sports. I'm not good at uh, any or all of them, but I very mm-hmm. much enjoy it. Um, and a- as you said, I think uh, my parents instilled in us at a very young age the importance of sport and how sport can facilitate socialization and developing different uh, characteristics, I think, uh, where I attribute a lot of my development in certain aspects.
1: Okay. So what got you in trouble when you were growing up?
0: Uh, I think being disruptive in class, particularly (laughs) on topics that weren't very much of interest to me. Uh, You know, I think I discovered at a fairly young age what I was interested in and what I wasn't. But I didn't really uh, keep quiet in some classes.
1: So which classes are those? Can you disclose? Well,
0: I can say that in high school, chemistry and physics were not my favorite. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay. Let's leave it at that. So growing up, what were you remember was made you so curious about that kind of will take you into this mind of forgetting about time other than hockey? Was there anything else that just made you passionate about growing up?
0: That's a profound question. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure that uh, I, I think just asking questions about you know what is and what is life and what is uh, what is life going to be okay. for for me right and mm-hmm. and I think uh, having an ima- being afforded the opportunity to have imagination.
1: Okay, so what what happened after that when you were imagining what your life was going to be? You were in high school. You didn't like chemistry and physics. So then, what's the next story when you move into undergraduate?
0: Yeah, I think that's always a great question, right? Like, what do you want to do when you grow up? Who do you want yeah. to be when you grow up? And I remember, um, I was fortunate that at my uh, at the university where I attended my undergrad. There was a the first in Canada, an undergraduate program for sports psychology. Mm. Uh, so I know you asked beyond sport, but I can't deny that sport also had a, an influence on my choices at at the undergraduate level. I remember my father asking me why sports psychology. And my answer was, well, there will always be sport.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Um, the interesting segue from that, so I thought I was going to become a sports psychologist for the Montreal Canadiens. Oh, was, cool. Okay. Yeah, that Me. was kind of my um, my end game, if you will. Uh, again, being uh, Franco-Ontarian, you have few choices in the hockey teams that you support, the Toronto Maple Leafs or the Montreal Canadiens. <laughs> in my opinion, of course. Yeah. Um, And lo and behold, there was the newest faculty of medicine that opened up in my hometown. So in 2005, the Northern Ontario School of Medicine was established. And I would say that was the catalyst to me shifting toward an interest in medical education.
1: Okay. And there was an experience or it was a job opportunity? What exactly it happened?
0: You know that's an interesting question. There was a job posting in the newspaper for uh, for an instructional designer. Oh, okay, I had very little idea what an instructional designer was, let alone what medical education was. Uh-huh. But I thought, given the experiences that I had at that point, why not throw my hat in the ring oh. and uh, I prepared for that interview and landed the job. And that was my entry.
1: Wow. Very adventurous. So how, how was that experience in terms of you entered a job that you really didn't know about it? Like what did it take for you to really feel home or, or were you thinking about that experience as a transition to something else? Where was where was your mind at the time?
0: I think that a lot of what I learned in uh, growing up in different mm. settings, social settings, uh, being a part of different teams, uh, it sort of gave me that confidence that I, I I, can do this. I can learn this. I can ask questions. Um, this is something new. Um, so it was uncharted waters, if you will. Uh, so it was kind of adventurous in that way. And, and I think we were all, uh, we being everyone involved, were sort of along a journey together to developing something new.
1: Oh, okay. So it was also the opportunity of building. So that's that makes it a little more, like probably easier as a community.
0: Right, and and the implication of so many different stakeholders and all of the actors involved in putting together a program, uh, mm. developing uh, you know new curricula, mm. and establishing uh, strategies on on implementing that curricula, um, and engaging, as I said, the, diff- the the many different stakeholders who who have to be at the table in order for this to be a success was an amazing experience for me. Oh,
1: I can believe for sure. And from there, what was the catalyst for you to get into medical education research?
0: So I was fortunate to be on the front lines of the curriculum development and implementation. Um, and it was actually in discussion with who were my eventual supervisors uh, to really, you know, take a look around you and to think about things from a scholarly perspective, think about things like why do certain things work this way, or um, you know, in which contextual settings can learning be uh, optimized? Mm-hmm. And so that really, I would say,, uh, helped me to identify what was one of the most unique features uh, of this new curriculum. And and that's what really led me to uh, want to pursue doctoral studies um, and uh, an interest in medical education research.
1: Right. So the encouragement came as the people around you trying to grow you in a way, or it was something that they wanted to explore for the unit?
0: Yeah, that's a very important question. Uh, I, I think it was mostly by me asking the question, um, um, it, would it be possible to okay. uh, integrate doctoral studies mm-hmm. while sort of being on the inside, if you will? Um, mm-hmm. And so really looking at the intersection between research and I guess, service um, okay. in that way. And so hearing from senior colleagues that that this, not only is this possible, this would be really cool.
1: Okay, that's interesting. And what made you want to pursue a PhD? Like you were fine, you would have your job, you were doing stuff that it was an adventure, but then what happened there when you said, well, oh, it might be interesting to do a PhD, what what was the catalyst?
0: Was a person, was an experience? Uh, I think it, it's part of me to want to just keep learning, want oh. to pursue a new or different challenge. And in my opinion, I wanted more. And so oh. I wanted to be able to uh, develop new knowledge and to be able to make a difference. So I mm-hmm. think, ar- arguably, for me, that's what drove me was to want to be able to learn more to make a positive difference
1: okay well one way that you describe your research program which I find really intriguing but I want to unpack it a little bit more you said that you you do research on education and transformation and social accountability um, is there a personal story behind that or it was also the institution you were situated or both
0: yeah I think it's a personal story in the sense that when I was collecting data for my PhD, I was visiting many of the communities that I had visited as a kid growing up playing hockey in, but never from the perspective of I'm working at a medical school, I'm conducting research and then interacting with members of the community. who who I met serendipitously along the way, um, have shared with me their appreciation for the work that's being done because they don't have access to primary care or to a family doctor. And so hearing that really gave me a lot of motivation to want to make a difference through the research that I'm engaged in. And, And recognizing that members of the community play a a huge role in uh, welcoming uh, health learners to their to their settings, providing them with quality learning experiences. And that really just opened my eyes to want to really engage uh, in this research. And I would say for the future, to engage the members of the community a lot more, Mm -hmm. since they make such a big difference in in the learning experiences of our learners.
1: That's that's very cool. So when you came to do this research, did you have experience doing qualitative research or that was something that you had to learn along the way as well?
0: So I would say that the skill, well, first of all, the interest in qualitative uh, research was really born out of my master's work. And so I, I, did a master's in sports psychology and was very much interested in the experiences of major junior hockey players uh, who who play in in northern Ontario and so that that was a qualitative study uh, looking at uh, multiple junior players on the various teams and really learning about you know what our data uh, how how do you manage these data uh, What interpretive lens do you apply? And so these were all skills that I uh, was able to learn during my master's and have continuously tried to enhance since. Okay,
1: cool. And then you use a really interesting method to me, which is the the guided walking method. How this method landed in your PhD? Is it you told me the story about the community telling you how good it is. Is it something that you decided after you had the experience going around the community or is it something that you anticipated using regardless? Where did it come from? How did you make it work? Because I haven't heard about it until I met you.
0: So that experience that I mentioned earlier of interacting with different community members was actually um, during one of the guided walks with oh, okay. uh, with a participant. and and this happened on on numerous occasions, which is actually one of the strengths, I think, of the uh, of the guided walks uh, method. Um, the selection of the guided walks is, of course, strongly linked to the importance of context. Mm -hmm. And I I have a big curiosity for context. I I truly believe that as researchers, we have a responsibility to understand the realities that our participants are sharing with us. And it's a great opportunity to to get a sense of that, Mm -hmm. Um, but also leverage the the context as an environment that actually promotes reflection. so the, the the story behind choosing the guided walks was really related to having discussed with some recent uh, medical graduates uh, about what are some cool ways to accessing medical students to participate in research. You know, we know that medical students and medical learners are super busy uh, and don't have much time. They're over, overly surveyed. And, and that's what was shared um, by these recent grads. You know, they said you, you must go to the context. You, you're not going to get the answers that you're looking for or access to the realities that you're interested in unless you go and live it with the participants. Okay. And that's where the guided walks in its different forms, uh, of course, has to be taken into account to contextualize its its application so that it resonates for participants and that it's accessible for your participants but that's largely where that uh, that came from
1: oh that is interesting and there is a whole body of literature on different types of guided works now i'm learning
0: right and and you know there there are different uh, applications of it where the participant is largely responsible for leading the physical walk and the places that are visited. On the other hand, you have situations where it's the researcher who really leads the participants through uh, the contexts of uh, of interest. And that's really born out of the mobilities paradigm. Uh, Scheller and Uri wrote a paper on the mobilities paradigm where they share uh, different applications of recognizing the importance of context and participant mobility uh, within a research process.
1: Okay, very, very interesting. And I imagine from what you tell me, like having said that any every time we use a method, we always encounter surprises with participants, but yours feels to me like you can have a wealth of stories about places where people took you, stories that they told you, can you share with us? like? Unexpected ones that you they got you by surprise and you have never thought about coming here, or I never thought about hearing this story? Is there anything like that?
0: So when I asked one of the participants to um share with me sort of beforehand, and so part of the guided walk using the guided walk method is that it's very important that you have conversation with the participants ahead of time. And this participant in question asked me to bring my passport. Oh. And so the interview was taking place in Canada. Uh Uh, However, when I arrived at the meeting location, uh, it turns out that this particular city was on a border with, of course, the U.S. And one of the participants' favorite places to study uh, happened to be in the U.S., and so we went on a car ride and oh. crossed the border together and conducted the guided walk in the U.S.
1: Oh, wow. Did he tell you why it's a particular place?
0: And and so th- for this participant, it was so meaningful of their experience in their uh, clinical world. Uh, uh-huh. It was a place of seemingly uh a, a break for them, and so the idea of driving away from the community, uh, you know, I have to admit, this coffee house was amazing. It had amazing jazz music, and okay. I mean, for whatever reason, the coffee or tea might have tasted better. I'm not sure, but it was, a, it, was a, it was truly a memorable experience and one that I have not encountered. Uh, okay, that's, that's
1: interesting. How, did you ever feel threatened or scared in going to a walk that you didn't know where you were going, or did, did you know that you go into certain places before you go?
0: So the idea is that you have some common understanding with the participant around what is expected uh, in terms of the method itself, but where participants choose to take you is really up to them. And, and, and I say that because in large part it's related to their their reflection in an ongoing fashion. And so uh, I, I can recall being in a downtown center, uh, very busy streets and you know, a lot of loud noises and you're trying to balance maintaining a conversation with somebody while holding an audio recorder and taking uh-huh. notes and ensuring your own security. And so there there is a situational awareness that is uh, critical. And of course, uh, from an ethical standpoint, uh, yours and the patient, uh, the participant's security is of utmost importance.
1: Right. So from there, and that sounded like a fascinating study, you moved to Sherbrooke, right? Like, Like how long from that it was and what brought you to Sherbrooke?
0: So although I've used the guided walks in different studies a uh-huh. paper that was published uh, was related to my doctoral work. Mm-hmm. And so since then I've taken on different uh service positions, mm-hmm. uh, faculty service positions and so Between 2016 and 2019, I was a faculty member at McGill University responsible for the implementation of competency-based medical education across uh, all of the residency programs. And in 2019 is when I started my research position at uh, Sherbrooke.
1: Okay. So is it because you wanted to move around? or it's just
0: the opportunities happen and you thought that might be interesting to go. So I think the link to educational transformations is probably Uh most appropriate here in that when I was at Northern Ontario school of medicine, social accountability and distributed medical education, both educational transformations were the underpinnings Uh of the model. When I was a faculty member at at McGill uh competency based medical education was the educational transformation mm-hmm. and so i th- i think i have the luxury of having participated in different ways and through different means mm-hmm. um in each of these educational transformations and so it's really at the core of my my research interest to uh to look at these transformations and how they are integrated in HPE programs at uh, at the faculties okay
1: so in book was also an educational transformation that brought
0: you there it was a full-time research position oh, okay It was a tenure track uh, research position, whereas my previous roles were largely service based. And so although I had a strong interest in research, there wasn't much time to be able to carve out of those Mm -hmm. roles to uh, to really undertake research in the way that I had uh, envisaged uh, growing up. And so I think part of growing up. Uh, I think this is me growing up in a, <laughs> research, in an, in a research position now. Okay.
1: So now that you are in a faculty position with a research, heavy research component under your belt, um, what have what are you involved these days? What is your curiosity from a research perspective? Are you still using the method? Where are you at in terms of your research uh, ideas?
0: So in terms of my research ideas, I think that for some time now, programs have been focused on developing and designing educational strategies that are related to social accountability, Mm. whether that's driven through accreditation requirements, whether that's attributed to social contract uh, in responding to the health needs of, of individuals and communities and i take it back to the role the important role that communities that welcome our learners invest so much of their i guess symbolic resources mm-hmm. in in providing quality learning experiences and and i i truly believe that the reason for that is so that they can recruit eventual health professionals to their to their communities to set up practice in their in their communities and so i'm very interested one how programs are incorporating social accountability in their programs mm-hmm. but also how are they engaging in co-developing these activities with the stakeholders and actors who are involved in the implementation Ultimately, I'm also interested in what what difference does it make, um, mm-hmm. and so all of this attention being paid to developing and designing educational approaches, while great, we need to also be able to illustrate how can the impact of this be documented.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I. I see like a, a pattern in two patterns in the story. So what is your, I don't think you are scared at taking an uncertain situations and certain opportunities, which is great. Uh, and the other pattern is the notion of social accountability or having leading together. Has, them, has there been any other like major experiences in your life that have impacted in the way that you are, becoming a researcher now other than moving from those different settings and doing that kind of research? Is there anything else behind?
0: I I like the way that you've characterized that. And I think it's this interest in sort of unchartered waters and, and, and having the affordances to be able to learn alongside those who also have similar interests and, and who are also in this discovery of this new area of research.
1: So you are you working with people who are just beginning the research journey, and that's what you're getting at?
0: Uh, more so the people who are interested in social accountability in, in oh. HPE. Mm-hmm.
1: OK. Is that a big community? I I don't know much about it.
0: Well, I think health professions education in of itself as a community is fairly small. I think the interesting part of social accountability is that it can mean different things in different contexts. And Mm -hmm. so it's, I think it's still in sort of that discovery phase of what is social accountability in health. I, I truly believe that many researchers have been interested in social accountability or concepts related to social accountability mm-hmm. for quite some time. And so it's a great opportunity to tackle those nuances.
1: Yeah, okay. But I'm going to pick on your term, uncharted territories, to move into the later part of the interview, which is what I call the small things. Um, in terms of uncharted territory, what would be something that you wanted to try if you didn't have any fear
0: in relation to research do
1: you like no 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 do you like we're talking about you team the person whatever interest you have i have the feeling you don't have too many fears so i would trying to think about the question
0: <laughs> i don't think i would skydive
1: oh really
0: yeah, I think that's probably one thing that I'm quite happy to have my two feet on land. I've uh, I've had the privilege to swim with turtles in the Great Barrier Reef and encounter a barracuda at a fair distance and a and a shark. Oh, cool. uh, very safe situation, regardless. Okay. Uh, but jumping out of a plane, I think for me is the limit.
1: So if you didn't have that fear, would you do that?
0: Sure. Why not?
1: <laughs> Why not? How is your training in Peloton going?
0: <laughs> uh, so I, I I haven't taken the dip to the Peloton, but I have continued with the uh, high-intensity training.
1: Okay. So so where you are at in your sports, are, are you, are you still participating in hockey? So what does your fitness life look like
0: so during the summer i like to golf okay. and during the winter i like to play hockey unfortunately uh, with the pandemic years we weren't able to uh to, to play recreational hockey uh otherwise known as beer leagues
1: <laughs> but what's your favorite tournament
0: Oh, we don't play. I don't play tournaments. <laughs>
1: no, I mean, uh, like the PGAs, like the, the big tournaments to yeah. watch. Do you follow them or do you just play recreational?
0: Yeah, no, I, I think you're, you, you ask a great question with regards to the, the golf. I, I really like the Masters. And I think for some reason, it sometimes aligns with CCME conference, like the timing. So oh, always, yeah. Um, yeah. So for me, it's a fun time of year. And uh, I just really liked the the, the tournament uh, at a young age. For me, it was Tiger Woods winning, mm-hmm. I think, in 2001. That really uh, sort of galvanized my interest uh, in trying to emulate Tiger. Oh,
1: wow. Well. Okay. Speaking of athletes, if you had one month to be an athlete that you admire, who that will be? Not Tiger. Not Tiger, so find another one. <laughs>
0: I think there's only one. Uh, oh. He's he's the great one, and uh, that's Wayne Gretzky.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you have one in, in golf and one in hockey. That's perfect. That's awesome. What's the worst job you ever had? It can be any job, not the professional ones.
0: Well, ironically, I talk about golf. One of my worst jobs was working at a golf course.
1: Oh, really? What were you doing?
0: I was gathering the golf balls on the. Um,
1: oh, on the driving range?
0: Thank you. The driving range. Oh. So I had to drive around in a little cart with barely a cage on it, protecting me from oh. those who were still hitting the ball. Um, I was also, after the members were done playing, cleaning their golf clubs. And it it was great because I also had access to the golf course. So it really wasn't that bad. And I was, I think, 18 at the time. Um, So, Mm
1: -hmm. That's an interesting one. I can imagine someone sending you balls at that distance.
0: I I wouldn't say it was a worse job, but at a very young age, I started working at the age of 12. A friend in school, uh, his family had a scrapyard. And so uh, it was a a way for us to win a little bit of money growing up and pay for, you know, the nice winter jacket that we liked or whatnot with the Montreal Canadian symbol on it. Um, And so I worked at a scrapyard when I was 12 and did all kinds of different things. Going back to your question about uh, getting into trouble, I think uh, we got into a little bit of trouble there.
1: Oh, really? What kind of things did you do?
0: Well, they restored older, like they restored junk Cars and they recycled car parts and and such. And so we would drive around in some of the drunk junk yard cars <laughs> in, in the sand dunes.
1: Oh, at 12 years old.
0: Well, we can edit that part, but yeah.
1: <laughs> okay, that's fine. <laughs> My final question. If you hadn't chosen academia, Which of your childhood dreams or aspirations you think you will have had a good chance of accomplishing? I will
0: go with being a sports psychologist for the Montreal Canadiens.
1: Okay, you stick to that. That's awesome.
0: I'm going to stick to that.
1: Will, Will you ever have an opportunity to go there? Have you been able to experience something like that?
0: I did get to work with some junior teams,
1: okay.
0: uh, not at the elite level of the uh, NHL. Um, but I did work with several players who are now in the NHL, however. Oh, wow. uh, but I think at this stage of my life, my role is better in in the stands, watching the game. Uh, <laughs> although I'm still very much interested in the psychology behind the sport.
1: Can you tell me one or two things that you learned when working with those junior players that really kind of emphasize your fascination for sports psychology?
0: So I have an affinity for team sport more so Mm -hmm. and that idea of role clarity and team dynamics okay, and the importance of cohesion with regards to winning Mm. I think was really something that was like tangible, very concrete. Uh, and, and perhaps that was largely due to the teams with who I worked, who were highly successful. Um, but observing how players interact and how they form a team and execute is really fascinating.
1: Okay, that's interesting. Well, thank you very much, Tim. This was a very lovely conversation. I appreciate you sharing your insights. Thank you, Sarah. Okay. Thank you everyone for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. This has been The
0: Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Saira Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinaro. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts.